Well, hey, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, We are finishing up a two-week mini-series called Mary's Song. As we look at Luke chapter 1, 10 verses in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And before we jump into the text this morning, I want to do just a couple of housekeeping items for you to, to be aware of next weekend. So we are moving into our Christmas Eve service uh, next weekend, and we have changed the service times. Um, we have no kids' services, so there'll be no nursery, no kids' zone classes through that time, just to allow everyone to be able to worship uh, with their families during that time. And so, because of that, we've changed the service times around. Uh, our goal is to have service at around 40 minutes. So we're going to have a service at 8.30, And then we'll have another service identical at 9.30 as well. So 8.30 and 9.30 next weekend only. And then we'll go back into our regular service times the following weekend on New Year's Eve. So 8.30, 9.30. If you're planning on getting a family picture, you remember we've got that available to you next weekend. Curtis and Rachel Thompson will be here. You can either do that before service, uh, before first service. You can do it in between services or you can stick around after. And they'll make sure if you want one, uh, you'll get one of those as well. So that's for your information for next weekend. Uh, If you see anything on our social media about service times, uh, would you do us a favor and share that? Uh, I know not everybody is going to be here today. Not everybody watches online when they're gone. And so we want to make sure that everybody uh, is aware of that. Like I said, we're in week two of this two-week mini-series on Luke chapter 1. Verses 46 through 56. So last week we worked through verses 46 down to verse 50. And this week we'll spend most of our time in verses 51 through 56. But in an effort to catch you up to where we went last weekend, let me, let me give you just a little bit of background as to what we've covered up to this point. Uh, we said last week that, that Mary, as she utters this song, is somewhere between the ages of 13 and 17. Uh, to be told at that young age that you are, one, pregnant, but, but two, pregnant with the Messiah who has been promised for thousands of years is, is no small task. We understand that this is weighing on Mary. And so uh, upon a visit from Mary to her older cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with John the Baptist, uh, we have a moment where Elizabeth and John the Baptist are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they reinforce what the angel has told Mary. It's kind of this reassuring that God has done what he said he was going to do. That what God has promised you, Mary, has come to be. You are, in fact, raising the Messiah who is to come. And so Mary is is dealing with all of the emotions that come from this, and, and In a moment of expressing gratitude to God, here's how she starts in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And as we move from that text to what we're going to look at this morning, I I think the question for us to wrestle with is why was Jesus born? 
you, you know the church answer. You know the answer you're supposed to say during this time of year. But as you reflect in your heart of hearts and answer the question, maybe what you believe isn't exactly why he came. It's, it's not hard to fathom that we would get this mixed up in a culture that is fueled by self. There is this misconception that floats around from time to time and, and seems to be elevated in our culture that says that Jesus came because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit felt like something was missing in their lives. And they looked at you and all of your glory and, and said, we must have a relationship with them. It sounds silly on the surface, but this is a lie that has pervaded our culture. Especially a culture that has prided itself and built itself up on you and I being number one. I'd ask the sarcastic question in that scenario, who is God? No, the hopeful nature of the birth of Jesus is that it's actually the opposite. The hopeful nature of the birth of Jesus as to why he had to come is the exact opposite of that. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit needed nothing outside of themselves. A perfect covenantal relationship whereby they needed nothing from you and I. They had everything that they needed in themselves. And they didn't need us, and this is where the hopeful nature of the Christmas story actually comes into play. This is the good news for you and I. They didn't need us to be complete. Perfect communion with one another without us. And so maybe the better question is, what motivates a perfect, holy, triune God who needs nothing outside of himself... To rescue a sinful creation who can never earn salvation nor pay it back? The answer is love. And what I've noticed about myself, and, and maybe you found this to be true in your own life, there is a huge difference in our perception of love. That depends on whether we feel like we are deserving of it or not. Let, let me explain what I mean. If I think I am so awesome and have bought into this lie that God couldn't imagine spending one more moment without a relationship with me, my response to this love is pretty, eh. Because after all, if, if I'm great... Why wouldn't God love me? Why wouldn't God want a relationship with me? You see, if I've elevated myself to be number one, the response to this love of God is, well, of course. Why wouldn't he? But as I think back on my life, and I think back to all the times that I have defamed his name. All the times that I've ignored his commands. 
all the time this, that my life has been centered around me striving for the throne. And that's just this morning. <laughs> but as I think back to those times, I, I begin to understand my sinful nature. I, I begin to consider the fact that while I was still covered in sin, the, the furthest thing from righteous, the furthest thing from holy, God sent his son to live the perfect life in my place, to die the death that a sinner like me deserved. And gives me a place in his kingdom forever. It's when I recognize that I don't deserve this. That I start to see a glimpse of the magnitude of this love. So it's with this mighty act of God in view. That sings the truth that you and I have experienced this undeserved love. Mary sings this song. Verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their most inmost thoughts. What a, what a contradiction between these two lines. Here's what you and I need to come to grips with. As we figure out this relationship between us and the Father and, and where we're different. Here's the reality for us that we need to come to grips with. God's name will last forever. His name will last forever. The reality for you and I is there's a day where we're forgotten. We will be forgotten. It's a tough reality to, to grasp, but it's the truth. Now, there's a reason why teenagers today aren't sitting around discussing the empirical achievements of Alexander the Great while driving around in their cars blasting the latest Beethoven concerto and hanging out at the local diner arguing why Bill Russell is the greatest NBA player of all time. Because time marches on. People are forgotten. This is the reality for you and I. I it, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but this is, this is the fate that awaits you and I. If time passes, if enough time passes, your name and my name, it's, it's going to be forgotten. Uh, James alludes to this truth when he writes in chapter 4, verse 14, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I, I had a glimpse of this last night. Uh, my family and I went to... Wayne City, and we watched uh, one of the tournament games, and they announced over the loudspeaker that, that this year's tournament was the 69th Wayne City Holiday Tournament, and my daughter Bella's sitting next to me, and she looks over at me, she says, Dad, did you ever win this tournament? And, you know, and in a moment of pride, I said, hey, you bet we did. And she's like, well, which one did you win? And I was like, 50th, and I, oh my goodness. Because in my mind, it was yesterday. In reality, it was 19 years ago. I'm not that old. Or so I thought. And the, the point of this is that 
time marches on. People will forget you and I. It's the nature of humanity. Now, does that mean your life is meaningless? Absolutely not. But here's what it does. It reprioritizes the name that you and I should seek to elevate. If there is one name that will last forever and it's not yours and it's not mine, maybe our lives find the most purpose when you and I seek to make much of that name as opposed to our own. It's a healthy dose of reality that reminds us that there is one name, the name that is above all names, the name that will last, the name that every knee will bow to, the name of Jesus. This is who our lives would be better served in making much of because it's the name that will last. So Mary continues in verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. Mary is speaking to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. It, it doesn't always make sense with, with our modern sensibilities. But yet, my question to you is, should we expect anything less from the God who in all of his glory took on flesh, became fully man, and yet with none of the sinful nature that you and I possess, and was born into a slobbered-on cattle feed box. A king whose crown on earth wasn't filled with gold and jewels, but thorns. Who was lifted up, not to the praises of those around him, but on a heavy wooden cross with spikes driven in to the most sensitive parts of the body to feel every pulse of heartbeat with excruciating pain. All the while dying the slow death of Suffocation as each breath becomes more difficult to come by than the last. So just like the Messiah's life and death didn't look like what the expectant Jewish world thought it would, the nature of those who will enter the kingdom of God looks different than the world may believe. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. We, we leave this place to go into a culture that, that says life is found in the accrual of happiness, health, and wealth. If you can do those and make a name for yourself, this is where purpose is found, and this is where your salvation could be bought. And the reality is, is that as Mary lays out these truth after truth of who God is, she says, no, actually the kingdom looks the exact opposite of the world system. That salvation is not available to those who earn it. That this gift from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is not something that can be bought. So spiritually speaking here, Mary's saying, don't, don't trust in the world's systems. 
trust in the truth of who God says will enter the kingdom. And here's where she goes in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. But he has sent the rich away empty. Spiritually speaking here, Mary speaks to the fact that there is a stark difference between those who know they have nothing and those who think they have everything. There is a stark difference and a harsh reality awaiting those who think, because of my name being elevated and what I've accrued, why wouldn't I be welcomed into the kingdom? There's a stark difference with those who will one day hear, depart from me, I I never knew you. As opposed to those who, who live with the understanding and the humility that comes from knowing, I have nothing to offer him. There is nothing in me that this act of salvation hinges upon. It is all through the work of Jesus Christ. And he says those who understand, those who understand that and the humility that comes from that, the kingdom awaits. So Mary's speaking to a universal problem. If you have or, or have had one problem in your life, it's, it's this. You have a spiritual hunger. And the reality for many of us is that we've we spent much of our life frantically trying to fill it. And you've looked to everything outside of Jesus, and, and it may feel like it's fulfilled you for a minute or a day or a week or a month, but but you know that there's a time when you're just as empty as you were before. Isn't it telling that over the course of human history, as we've made thousands upon thousands upon thousands of advances in civilization, technological, economical, societal, and, and yet in all of those advances, no one has come up with an adequate solution as to the filling of the human soul. Mary tells us why. It's something only Christ can do. The the reality is this, guys. I know there are some of you that have lived your life and are living your life seeking to fill it from something. And and I ask this question lovingly. How is it working out for you? From experience, I, I know you're just as empty as you came in with. If, if what you're looking to fill your soul is anything apart from Jesus Christ, I can promise you, because I know how you feel, you're empty. So Mary has laid out the universal problem of humanity. You have a spiritual hunger that can be filled by one. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. You you want to find a helpless people. (laughs) Not that it removes us from this label, but but if you want to go biblical and look at the storyline of the Jewish people, it is a maddening, frustrating, helpless picture 
of what sin does. And, and we often take this prideful posture of you're, you're in the presence of God and yet you continually turn your back on him or, or do the opposite of what he tells you. And, and then in a moment of reality, I remember that's my story too. But you think about the storyline of Israel, even all the way back to the beginning. Uh, when, when creation has a perfect communion with God the Father, needing nothing, and yet they decide to look outside of him for fulfillment. We recognize in that moment that as God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, from, from his presence, from perfection, he's also merciful to them. What is the first realization of Adam and Eve as they've been banished from the garden? As the first sin is committed, they recognize they're naked. They, they, they try to hide from God because of the shame. And God would have been completely within his rights to say, you figure this out for yourself. You've made this bed. It's, it's time to lie in it. And yet, in a, in a first act of mercy, he does what? He clothes them. The, the creation that had everything that they could need and yet turn their back on God, his first response is mercy. And he says, I, I'm setting in play, I'm setting in motion a plan to save you. And you look at the storyline of Israel, the, the rescue from slavery from Egypt. I mean, over and over again, a people who did not deserve it, and yet we come back to the fact that God is merciful to his people. So, so the point of this is this. If there is unfaithfulness in your relationship with God, it's from you. If there's unfaithfulness in my relationship with God, it's from me. Because what Mary has said is, is God is merciful. He, he's faithful to do what he said he's going to do. And we witness this throughout the storyline of Israel, and we witness it in our lives. That those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and live lives in obedience to him, the promise that God cannot move away from because he's faithful, is that he's mighty to save. So Mary ends this section by saying this to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I skipped verse 56 on my uh, script. Do you have it up there? We'll see how this section ends together. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. My, my plea to you is this. Jesus is inescapable. Every one of us has to do something with him. 
Jesus asks his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? It's the same question that you have to answer. Jesus is inescapable. Church, there is a day coming, and, and I know I know there's times we, we've put this so far off in our minds that we don't grasp the reality of it. And, and I see it on your faces from time to time. You don't grasp the reality of it either. There is a day coming where the fair and final judgment of Jesus Christ will come on all of humanity. And that there are two groups of people. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and those who have rejected him. That's it. Jesus is inescapable. You have to do something with him. To, to live half-heartedly as though, yeah, I, I believe he exists, but I'm not going to go so far as to, to make him my Lord and Savior. You've made your choice. You have to do something with him. You have to trust in him or you have to reject him. This is the decision that befalls all of humanity. And it leads to the judgment that will befall all of humanity. Those who have trusted in him will be judged to eternal glory. Those who have distrusted him or rejected him totally will be judged to eternal separation. This, this is the fate of all of humanity. And it all hinges not on your name and my name, which is here today and is going to be forgotten tomorrow. It hinges upon the name that will last forever. So as we move into this Christmas season, we, we recognize that Jesus is the newborn baby in the manger. And, and although we cartoonize that at times in our mind we, we recognize the mission as to why he came to grow and live the life that you and I both should recognize in our hearts that we are incapable of living uh, that he has come as the sacrificial lamb to take the nails in his wrists and in his feet to, to experience the excruciating pain that you and I deserve, but all of that was nothing as compared to the wrath of God being poured out on him that you and I have coming to us apart from him. you, you got to do something with him. And, and so maybe, maybe this is, is less of an invitation and more of a pleading. Come to him. Trust in him. You, you know in your heart of hearts that whatever it is that, that you've trusted in, that, that you've put as, as the central piece in your life and have clung to that for salvation, you know it's not filled you. And those of you who have trusted in him, I mean truly trusted in Jesus, have understood the fact that he, he has satisfied you in a way that nothing else has. You and I both know we've tried everything else and it's left us empty. And there's something about the name of Jesus that provides what every soul is longing for. So as we end this series this morning, as we move into the Christmas season, as you make plans, as you exchange gifts, as you do all the things that we do, 
may the question on our mind through it all be what will I do with Jesus? Who do I say he is? We'll leave that hanging in the balance for you to decide. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, as we work through the scripture, we we see a clear picture of your holiness as much as our human minds can grasp. Uh, Father, may the picture of, of who you are and your righteous and holy nature cause us to understand who we are. A, a people who are born with a sinful nature. A, a people who have been separated from you by our own choosing. God, may the, the depths of our sinful depravity, would that lead us to rejoice to worship, to to fall at your feet at the mercy that you've displayed through your son. But we recognize that your word tells us you needed nothing from us. That there's no longing for us in you, no, no need for us in you, but Father, may it cause us to recognize we have a soul wrenching need for you. So Father, may your spirit work among us. May you convict us of our sin. May you lead us to the end of the road in trying to manufacture this ourselves or trust in our abilities or our wealth or whatever it is. And may that place of emptiness cause us to look to you. To trust that you are who you say you are and you've done what you've promised to do. To send your son as the sacrifice for all who would trust in you. God, I pray that would be us. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.